The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. And this morning we're going to be looking at the story, as it were, the life story of David, the king. We've been looking at this series, Undaunted, uh, of David's life. Uh, This life that God uh, had a special calling upon from this young boy who became uh, a a poor uh, shepherd of an indescript family in an indescript town in an indescript country uh, in the world and that he was anointed as king and he was described as a man who was after God's own heart and that God used David powerfully uh, to establish the kingdom of Israel to defeat the enemies uh, of God's people to bring about reform and beauty that he wrote many uh, of the psalms that we use in worship And that through David's line uh, came the true king, that is Christ, the true David. And so David was a significant and a very important figure uh, within our family story. He's part of our heritage. You can do heritage.com. You can do whatever it is that you look up and David won't come up. But if you were to spiritually look uh, in your spiritual lineage, you would see David's name prominently affixed upon your family tree. And you would see in that, as you began to read stories, that David was a great man, but he was flawed. And that as we look at his story, especially uh, this week, we're going to be covering seven or eight chapters this morning. There you go. Um, Because uh, it's one grouping of the fallout of David's really bad decisions in chapter 12. When David was with Bathsheba, and committed that sin, and committed the sins of murder, God said to him, there's going to be fallout. There's going to be difficulty. And chapters 13 through 20 are the picture of that story. And so we're going to look at how David responds. We're going to look at his uh, story, and we're going to engage it, as it were, a little differently, because people seem to have a tendency to approach Scripture and to approach the Bible uh, looking for moral lessons of what do I need to do and what do I need uh, to stop doing. Uh, We're supposed to read this and we're supposed to be like David or we're supposed to be uh, like Abraham. And in other cases, we're not to be like David and we're not supposed to be uh, like Abraham. Uh, But we want to read these stories. We have a tendency of reading these stories uh, as moral stories. But I was reading and preparing this week and being reminded of how we approach the Old Testament specifically and was reminded that when Jesus was talking to the disciples uh, on the road uh, to Emmaus uh, in Luke 24, he was fascinated by their lack of understanding. He said, how is it that you've read the Bible your whole lives? How is it that you've read it and read it and read it and memorized it and memorized it? How is it that you've gone to church and you, you know it and you, you had all the Sunday school lessons and you had all of this stuff and you missed me in the middle of it? How is it that you didn't understand that the Son of Man had to come and die, that the Messiah had to be born and had to suffer and die for the sins of many? And the answer is because you've been looking at it as a moral story. You've been looking at it as do's and don'ts, and many of us are in that same predicament. When Jesus was saying, here's what you should have been seeing, and on the road to Emmaus, he opened up the scriptures, the Old Testament, where we're looking at today, and said, here's what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see me. 
You were supposed to see my story within all of the stories of the saints. That when you read the prophets, you were supposed to see the true prophet. When you read stories of the kings, you were supposed to see the true king. When you studied in Leviticus about the priesthood and all of that, you are supposed to see the true priest. When you saw great warriors and those who fought on behalf of, of God, you were supposed to see the true warrior. When you studied about the sacrificial lamb, you are supposed to see the true lamb. And if you didn't, then you've missed the whole thing. And so, so many of us are coming this morning and you're going to read about David and you're going to hear about David and you're walking away going, what am I supposed to do and what am I not supposed to do? What am I supposed to do and what am I not supposed to do? What should I start doing? What should I stop doing? And there's always that within any story and any biblical lesson, but there has to be more than that. You have to also see what Christ has done on our behalf. You have to see the greater story uh, that is taking place, that our stories, David's stories, are part of a grander story. And we've talked about this regularly within our church, but I want to remind you again uh, that we're part of a story that has these four chapters, that the story began in perfection, uh, that God created all things and it was perfect and good in the garden, right? And then something terrible happened. Chapter 3 of Genesis came along. They only had two chapters to enjoy it. And we don't know how many years those two chapters were, but something terrible happened. And they entered now into this season of a fall. That sin entered and everything was messed up. That there was distance and there was a lack of integrity. And there was disintegration that was taking place. But then there was the promise of redemption And Christ, and through faith, has entered into the world, and we now live in this age, in this chapter, as it were, of the tension of the good and the bad, of the evil, uh, fighting against what is good and perfect, the already and the not yet. And we look forward to the day when Christ will return and make all things new, that fourth chapter. And so we find ourselves now in, in the middle of a battle scene. We find ourselves now in the middle of a struggle. How many of you would have experienced life and felt the word struggle defined it well? We're in that struggle. And and the interesting thing about the struggle in which we find ourselves is we were born into this struggle. We don't know any different. If you were to go to Syria and look around the bombed out cities of Syria and you did a study of children in Syria, you would probably find that the children in Syria aren't like the children in America. They don't frolic and jump around and dance in the streets. They don't go and play because it's war ravaged. Because they know that if you go and you play out in the street, your sniper fire may take you down. That if you see a plane overhead or a helicopter go overhead, you better take cover. Instead of here, you step out and you wonder and you look at the helicopters and the planes. There, you better be careful because it could be chlorine gas that they're dropping on top of you because it killed your friends in kindergarten the week before. The children aren't the same because they've been born. They don't know that you children in America have it like you have it. They don't know any different. We're like those children in Syria. We've been born into a battle. We don't know chapter 1, and we haven't experienced fully chapter 4 yet. But God has said this, I've come to take your story. I've come, John 10.10, Christ came to give you life and to give it to you how? Half-heartedly, right? Yeah, just kind of make it by, guys. Hold on, fingernails until the end. Jesus will come back. Maybe you've got a parachute, maybe you don't. No, he said, I gave you life and I want you to live it abundantly. I want you to enjoy all that's in this life. I want you to experience it in its fullness. Your story, your life, that's what he has for you. Do you believe that? No, you don't. 
And I know you don't because we don't live it every day. We live in bombed out streets. We live just, we live the Eeyore theology of Christian life. Hey, that's a nice house. Yeah, well, probably the rain's going to blow it over. Nice tail, Eeyore. Probably fall off tomorrow. So how's life? I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I wish I could just tell every single person I meet there is no other shoe. There really isn't in Christian theology another shoe. Christ says, I came to give you life and to give it abundantly uh, to you. David, he needed to hear John 10.10. Because beginning in chapter 12, his life unraveled. His life unraveled. All he could hear was his failing. All he could see and be consumed by was the challenge uh, of unabated lust and power. And no one around him to challenge him. And compiling and stacking one bad decision on top of another bad decision. Uh, until it led uh, to those words by Nathan that said, your sins are forgiven. Hey, that's great news. The best news you'll ever hear. But the sword is never going to leave your house. Your family is going to be a mess, David. And it's all because uh, of you. I read a story about a man who was a devout Catholic, and he had been given the opportunity uh, to go meet the pontiff, to go to Rome and meet the Pope. And in the letter that he received, it said that you will be able to ask three things of the Pope. Now, I'm not going to get into Roman Catholic uh, theology of the Pope and all that, but for the point of the story, his friend looked at him and said, what are you going to ask for? He said, well, I'm going to ask for peace on earth, peace in the world. That seems reasonable. And I'm going to ask for God to do, you know, to, to love my family. And he said, what's the third thing? He said, I'm going to ask for forgiveness for that week in 1967. So many of us have a week in 1967. David had a week. David had a bad series of weeks where he made a lot of bad decisions. Uh, and they were compounded now uh, in his life. And they began to unravel his life. And some of you... 1967 was a year many years ago, young people, it's in history. It was actually a year before I was born. Ha, I'm not that old. I turned 50 and everything's kind of falling apart this year. I mean, eyes and all knees and shoulders. But some of us have that year, that week of 1967. And it's created in our lives a series of challenges. We're going to look now at an incredible glimpse into the life of a man and see how he responds. I wonder what people would say if it was our story on paper. Aren't you thankful that it's not your story on paper? (laughs) Man, I'm so thankful there wasn't social media back in years ago. So let's look first at this. First thing I want you to hear. Challenging situations reveal our hearts. The challenges of life, challenging situations, they reveal our hearts. They have a purpose Uh, They have an outcome, they have uh, an effect, and one of the effects of the challenges that we face in life, those difficult times in which we are going through, uh, they reveal our hearts. The story of David's life is filled uh, with challenges. Uh, The story of David's life is one uh, that began, uh, he didn't ask to be anointed as king of of Israel, he was perfectly fine being the youngest son of a shepherd uh, in Bethlehem, and he didn't want to be king, but he was anointed king and said that you're going to be king, and now his life turned into a massive challenge. 
And you see early in his life that he met those challenges and it revealed his heart as a man after God's own heart. Because he went in and he saw Goliath. He said, why is anybody going to kill this guy? And I was like, have you seen this guy? He said, yeah, I've seen this guy, but have you seen our God? He's nothing in comparison to our God. And he walked out, dead Goliath. Then he was like, hey, but I'm supposed to be taking care of Saul. So I'm with Saul. Spears throwing at him. He's playing the guitar. Saul's throwing spears. David's like, oh no. So he flees, goes into the wilderness, but he doesn't lose his faith. He hides in the wilderness, given the opportunity to kill Saul on a couple of occasions. His heart is revealed. He's a man after God's own heart, a man of righteousness, a man who wanted to pursue God, and so he doesn't kill Saul. He even tells Saul, I could have killed you, buddy. I could have taken your life, but I didn't. Why do you want to kill me? He was best friends with Saul's son. Uh, there was deep intimacy. There was friendship in that. His best friend and Saul and all were killed, and he ascended to the throne. It was challenged, but he came, and he was a godly king, and he established Israel, defeated their enemies, made Jerusalem a great city, wanted to honor the Lord with a temple that he wasn't able to build, but still had a passion for the Lord. And so you look at David and you go, man, these challenges revealed his heart, right? His, his report card was really, really good, all up until the spring of 1967, or whatever year it was, all up until that spring. That spring, he read too much of the headlines. He read too much of the press. David's awesome. David's great. David's cool. David doesn't need to do anything. So David stayed home. Remember the story? I'm not going to go back into it all. But he stayed at home. He looked over, saw a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, uh, and it all unraveled uh, at that point. Murder, espionage, uh, all of the lies, all uh, of that. And now you see uh, in the midst of this, the things were taking hit. David's life was taking a hit. And you need to understand that life, your life, is going to be filled with challenges. It's going to be filled with challenges. Because you see, you need to understand that you've been born into this war zone. And if you're born into a war zone, uh, that means that there's fighting and combating sides within that war. And so we know that there's a king on the throne, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God, the creator of all things, and that we're part of his family and part of his army. But there's also an enemy And the enemy's goal and mission is to take you out. That John 10.10, the first part of John 10.10, it it says that there's a mission statement for the evil one, our enemy as well. And you may know that. It says the thief comes only. Great word. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So what's the mission statement of your arch enemy, the evil one? The one who wanted to try to take down Christ and couldn't, so he turned, as it were, in Revelation. He couldn't take down the child of the woman, so the red dragon turned upon all of her children. All of us. So you've got this singular thing, and his desire is what? To kill, to kill, steal, and destroy. There you go. And David was experiencing that. That the evil one uses the flesh, it uses the world, it uses all of these things. And David fell for it, and David was in the midst of it. And the evil one used now all of this stuff in David's life because he never wavers from completing his mission. Folks, that's not bad news that I'm telling you, that's just news. That's just reality. That this is the world in which we live, and so you need to know that. Uh, One of the greatest successes of Satan, uh, at least in the Western church, is to convince us that he doesn't exist. But he is prowling and he is there. And so in this part of David's story, the enemy is using family. He's using all of this going on uh, to reveal David's heart. David had responded so beautifully before, but now he doesn't. 
Challenges and attacks always reveal our hearts, just like successes and victories do in our lives. So consider for a moment your story. Because your story probably is like David's. There are seasons and moments when you were taking on Goliath and going, I got this. I'm doing well. Me and God, we're really tight. We're, we're living close together. And then something happens. A moral failing. Uh, uh, just a failing. A challenge. Something happens outside of your control. Uh, cancer enters. The death of a loved one. Divorce. Your parents split up. Bankruptcy. Some challenge enters into your world. And you've got to now ask, how am I responding? How am I going to respond to this new chapter, this new season uh, of my life? And so we're going to look at David and how he responded. The same man who is considered a man after God's own heart. Look at how David responds. David sadly responds by losing heart. That heart that was after God, it's now a heart that has become passive. It's a heart that is deflated. It is a heart that in some ways is lost. He didn't lose his salvation, but he's lost heart. David is cast in a poor light in these stories, by the way, and we're going to read a couple of pieces of them. This man who's described as a man after God's own heart. Why do you think the Bible regularly says, don't lose heart? 2 Corinthians 4.1. Why do you think he says, don't lose heart? You ever thought about that? It's because you can lose heart. <laughs> don't lose heart. Why are you telling me that? Because you can lose heart. Because part of the scheme of the enemy, part of the manipulation of that enemy that we have, uh, that enemy of old, that one who's been around for all time, that one who was created by God and turned against him, uh, that one, he likes to attack your heart because he knows that the heart is the place, uh, is the seat of life, and from it flow all of the springs of life. So if he can attack your heart, if he can get you to lose heart, then guess what? He's one, as it were. He can't take your salvation, but he can neutralize you and have you uh, on the side. If you're in combat, what is more costly to your enemy? To kill one of the enemy soldiers or to wound them? It's to wound them. That's more, uh, that's more problematic for your enemy. And so Satan knows that. He knows, I can't take them out. I, I can't fully take them out, but I can wound them. I, I can make them lose heart. And that's what was happening uh, to David here. And one of the signs of losing heart, and part of the way that we know that David was losing heart, is passivity. Is passivity. The definition of passivity is acceptance of what happens without active response or resistance. The acceptance of what happens without active response or resistance. And we know that this is part of the fall, and we know that this is part of the scheme of the enemy to lose heart, because in chapter 3 of Genesis... Eve was standing there under the full assault of the evil one. The evil one was coming at Eve, and he was lying about God. He was twisting the truth. He was inserting lies uh, within a true statement to manipulate it and to, to look, uh, to change how Eve viewed God. And where was Adam? He was out on a boy's golf trip, right? He was hanging on the other side of Eden, just kicking back, and Eve was all on her own. No, it says that he was right there next to her on her elbow is what the Hebrew says, the man who is on her elbow, right there. And you know what David was, or you know what Eve was doing, or David, gosh, let me get the right person. You know what Adam was doing? Nothing. He was passive. He lost his voice. He should have said, whoa, whoa, hey, Satan? No, 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 no. 
God spoke directly to me. I'm the one who communicated it to Eve. You've got this wrong. Hey, sweetheart, we've talked about this. Don't listen to talking snakes. And this is really a bad situation. And he's lying to you. So, honey, let me take care of this. But you know what he did? Nothing. And you know what men and women have been doing ever since then? Standing by passively with no voice. When we should speak, we're quiet. When we should engage, we stand by in terror and in fear. Larry Crabb, in a wonderful book that I'd encourage you to read called The Silence of Adam, says that one of the greatest effects of the fall on men especially was that we've lost our voice. We've become passive. That when we're supposed to speak, we don't speak. And one of the things that needs to happen more than anything within the church is that men regain their proper biblical, Christian, godly voice. And that is not to in any way the suppression of women, uh, but it is to say there are functions and roles within the church that men and women carry. And the men, by and large, we've abdicated ours. And they've been backfilled by godly, righteous, wonderful women who have stepped into places where if you would ask many of them, they would say to you, I'd rather not be here. I'd rather the men step forward. And so it's a challenge. It's a challenge of passivity. And it's not only a male issue, by the way, ladies. You're not, and before you start elbowing the guy next to you, it's not all about him. It's all of us, by and large, have lost our voice. Passivity is a picture of losing heart. And David had lost heart. Let me show you some examples of that. So David, he was there fighting it, as it were, for his unborn son. And his son had just been born. And he, in chapter 12, is praying and praying. And the child dies. And David gets up and you go, what a godly man. This is incredible. Look at him. And then it all starts to spin out. Chapter 13, uh, David's family. And by the way, if you're trying to look at David's family tree, it's more like a bush. It is just a mess and a conglomeration of this wives and concubines and half-sons and half-daughters and brothers and sisters and cousins and everybody's there. And Tamar was one of his daughters. She was the full sister of Absalom. And David had another son named Amnon. And Amnon was lustfully uh, approaching his now half-sister Tamar. And he came up and concocted a, a lie and a ruse very much like his father. Apple didn't fall far from that tree. And he manipulated his half-sister to come into his bedchambers, and there he raped her, and she lost her virginity. And Absalom took his sister and said, you can live in my house. And for the remainder of her days, she lived as a widow, or she lived uh, as an unmarried woman in shame in her brother's house. And you know what David did about it? Nothing. He got angry, but he did nothing. Anger is not a sign of someone who doesn't have passivity. Anger is just saying, I'm angry about this. Well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to discipline your son? Are you going to do anything? Are you going to comfort your daughter? Or are you just going to let her now be relegated to this marginal life over here of shame and of feelings of guilt and of loss within your society? He did nothing. He didn't fight. There was no fight left in him. But Absalom... He concocted a plan to defend the integrity of his sister. So two years later, he had a party. And he invited all of his brothers and half-brothers and everybody were there. Uh, And Amnon came and he got Amnon drunk. And he had told, Absalom had told his buddies, said, hey, when Amnon gets drunk, jump him and kill him. And that's what they did. They jumped him and they killed him. 
And word got back to David. You know what David did? Nothing. He cried. Did he approach Absalom? Nope. Did he do anything other than maybe go, man, if two years ago I had actually done something, maybe my son wouldn't be dead now. Maybe if I defended the integrity of my daughter, instead of being a passive, quiet man, something would have been different now. And so Absalom ran off, and he went uh, in exile, chapter 13, uh, for a number of years. And you know what David did when his son was in exile? Nothing. He didn't pursue his son. He didn't go look for his son. He didn't give a rip about his son in that he was passive. He was quiet. He didn't have a voice. And then someone confronted David in chapter 14 and said, David, you've got to bring your son home. Come on. He's the son of the king. So David brought his son home. And he said, here's what I'll do. You can let Absalom come back into Jerusalem, but I never want to see his face. He can live in Jerusalem. He can live in another house, chapter 14. But I never want to see him. So for two years, they lived in the same town. It wasn't a big town back then, by the way. They would have bumped into each other. It takes a lot of work not to bump into each other for two years. And so David, again, did nothing. And then rumors started that Absalom was going to Hebron, and Absalom was starting a coup d'etat, and he was gathering about all those who would circle around him and would lead this coup. And David heard it, and there was now going to be a fight for the kingdom of Israel, for the throne of Jerusalem. And you know what David did? He did nothing. He didn't fight. Chapter 15, verse 30. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered. He's the king. If somebody's challenging the throne, do you know what you're supposed to do as a king? Defend the throne. Rally your army and beat anybody who's trying to take the throne because you see the throne is larger than the man. The office is larger than the individual. This is an attack on David personally. It's an attack on the entire system of Israel, and the man who was in place to do something about it slumped off with sackcloth on his head, crying all the way. David had lost his heart. He had no fight left in him. And we see this even more, maybe what the motive was or what the thing underneath it was driving this. I think it was guilt. I think that David's guilt had been so aggravated Uh, that he lost heart. And we see this when Absalom was finally killed in chapter 18, verse 33. Because David had, Joab and some of the guys rallied around David and said, David, this is nuts, man. Vernacular, it's not in Hebrew. Um, David, dude, do something. You're the king. Let us go and get the kingdom back. Let's unify the kingdom again. He goes, okay, fine. I'll let you go. But please, literal words, please be gentle with Absalom. So you want us to be gentle to the man who's overthrown your kingdom. The man who murdered your son. The man who has slept with ten of your concubines in broad daylight to publicly shame you. You want us to be gentle with him. David said, yes, please be gentle with my son Absalom. And so Joab did what any good general should have done at that point. He disobeyed the king's commands and ran a sword uh, right through Absalom and killed him because that's what you do to insurrectionists. That's what you do, especially in that time and that day and that age. That's what happens. And you know what David did? 
Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 18, verse 33. Interesting. The narrator could have said all of that with these simple words, and David mourned the death of Absalom. Why did he go into such flowery? Why did he go into such major language? I think it's to say that David wasn't in his right mind. Because I think that what David was doing was David was looking back and he was saying, all of this is my fault. The sword will never depart your house. Chapter 12, verse 10. And David had come undone. And he sat and he was overwhelmed. He was reflecting on how his unabated passion all those many years ago had been so costly to him and to his family. His infant child had died. His beautiful daughter Tamar had been raped by her brother. Amnon was now murdered by Absalom. Absalom has created a, a coup d'etat. Absalom is killed by Joab. Eventually Sheba uh, rebels against David. David was in a mess. David had lost heart. Some of you are going, I relate to David. My life is the same way. I've made so many mistakes. Uh, These things have happened. My life has come. I don't have any fight left in me, Bill. You're calling out something that's not there. Folks, that's what losing heart is like. It's losing that fight. It's losing your voice. It's just throwing up your hands and going, I don't have it left in me. But here's the beauty of this story. God didn't leave David there. God didn't leave David there. God sent someone, as He always does, that we need to be shaken into action. When we have lost heart, what we need most is not to be left alone. What we need most is to be shaken back into action. And that's what happened. And God used Joab. You've seen, now we're sort of doing a a picture study of three, a character study of Absalom, David, and now Joab a little bit. Joab wasn't a good man, by the way. He was a warrior. I'm not highlighting the righteousness of Joab here. It actually is highlighting the fact that God can use any means by which he desires in order to accomplish his end. And so he used Joab, who, by the way, disobeyed a direct order of the king. The king was deal gently uh, with Absalom, but Joab saw the larger picture. And when he saw Absalom caught in the oak tree, the Tenereth tree, uh, by his hair, and he's hanging there, uh, he came up uh, and they killed him. And then they took his body and, and they threw his body down and they covered it with a pile of stones. Interesting little word study that you might want to do uh, is that sort of idea of stones or pile of stones that is used throughout the Old Testament as a place where those who are outcast are buried under that pile of stones. So he knew what had to happen to Absalom. He remembered in chapter 17, verse 14, where God said he was going to overthrow Absalom. He knew this. He says, I'm going to do it. And so he came, and now everything has happened, and he gets word, chapter 19, verse 1 through 8. Listen to these words. And it was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So that the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Do you see the effect that David's grief was having? 
that the people who just won back the kingdom for their king entered back into Jerusalem with shame. It says they slunk back in. That David, because of where he was in all of this, David couldn't see the bigger story, but Joab could. And look at what Joab does. It's awesome. (laughs) Then Joab came into the house of the king, and he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters, the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Ah, finally, somebody challenged David and said, David, get over yourself. Yes, your son died, but do you see who your son is? He's not a good man. He was a man who's done horrible things. He took the kingdom from you. He needed to be destroyed. And now, David, you care more about your son than you do the people who risked their very lives to gain this kingdom back for you. And you need to remember who you are, David. You're the king. And kings need to be on their thrones, and kings need to speak, and kings need to rule, and kings need to do kingly things, David. That's what Joab said. And this would be a great movie, wouldn't it? And he came in, and you know what David said? Then the king arose, and he took his seat at the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. Do you see what just happened? David had to be shaken back into reality. David, yes, life is a mess. Yes, your family is a mess. And your marriages are a mess. And this whole thing, it's a mess. But David, you're the king. Live out of the identity of who you truly are. David, go be a king. Joab risked great. He could have died right there by challenging the king like that. But oh, how thankful David must have been to have somebody who would at least speak clearly to him and truth to him. We must be reminded that God gives us uh, this hope and this challenge to come and to remind us of who we are. And the primary way He does that is through His Word. That's why we should be students eating this Word, studying this Word, so we can be reminded that you are more than conquerors, that you are beloved sons and daughters uh, of the King. This is who you are, that you were bought with a high price, that you are safe and secure, that you have the third person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Son, in power and in glory, dwelling in you, and that you can do more things than you ever could have imagined that you could do, and I have blessed you more than you ever dared dream or imagine I'm with you even until the end of the age. You need to be reminded of that. Right? Yeah? Because you're not going to be reminded about it tomorrow at work. When you walk into work, or you walk into the club, or you walk into wherever it is, they're at school, they're not going to say, Hey, Bob! Child of the King! Glorious in the sight! In God! They're going to say, You're late. I needed that on my desk about an hour ago. What have you been doing all weekend? You look haggard and terrible. 
How's the marriage? And actually, I don't really care about your marriage. Just get to work. Oh, you got a C on your paper. Boy, you're not a really good student. You may not be a great kid. We grade. And we need to be reminded of this. And God gives us His Word. And guess what else He gives us? He gives us one another. He gives us deep community in Christ. Because guess what I need? I need to be reminded sometimes, sometimes harshly, by a Joab, Bill, quit. Bill, remember who you are. Bill, you're kingly, you're saintly, you're all of these things. Bill, and you need that as well. Part of the great danger is that we live in isolation in our lives. Do you have somebody who'll speak truth to you? Most of you are going, heck no. Then you're on, you're in danger, you're on dangerous ground. You're on thin ice. Because we need someone to look at us and go, that behavior, that thought pattern, that's not the thought pattern of a son or daughter of the king. That's an orphan mentality. And you're not an orphan anymore. You've been bought with a great price. So folks, here's the larger story. Your story finds significance and meaning in this story around this table, that Christ came and He purchased you. He came and He redeemed you. He came and He gave you life. He gave you hope. He says, you know what I love to do with messed up stories? I like to redeem them. How many of you have a messed up story? Yeah, but there's a knot on the family tree, you know, that you look and go, whew, I got that week of 1967. You know what He wants to say to you about that week in 1967? Let it go. It doesn't define you anymore. What you did as a teenager, what you did as a young man, what you did uh, in your first marriage, what you did uh, in your life in private, what you did on the business trip this past week, uh, what you did in your compartmentalized way of thinking, well, I love Jesus, but I can live and do whatever I want to do over here. He's saying, hey, I can forgive you of that. I have forgiven you of that, but come, let me do it. Come, let me renew it. And that's where we're coming today. So my invitation to you, and we're going to go a few minutes long today, but my invitation for you today is that you come with your whole story to this table. You come and you let Christ redeem it. You come and you let Him speak again truth into your life that you're beautiful and you're loved and you're valued and you have a Father who's going to defend you. You have a Father who's going to take care of you. So let's prepare now and come to this table.